Matthew Dix is one of the most accomplished storytellers of all time. And he wrote a book which documents how you can emulate his ability to tell a story. Despite what you instinctually might think, it's actually not something that you're inherently born with or without. Anybody can learn to tell a good story. And so in this podcast, you're going to hear about the following, the beautiful consequences of becoming a better storyteller, how the work that Matthew suggests can make you a better family man and a better father and a better friend. Uh, Matthew will read an original story that he has told hundreds of times now. He's going to reveal the key ingredients to good storytelling, something actionable that you can go and take away in your next interaction. He talks a lot about the idea of narrative as well and uses the the and uses the analogous story to explain why Jurassic Park actually isn't about dinosaurs. And then we finish with a story of my own that I actually put together as soon as I finished Matthew's book, being so inspired by these lessons that he had um, imparted on us. So, and so I hope you enjoy it. And if you do enjoy it, please be so kind as to pump your good juice into the algorithm and leave a review. Let the algorithm know that this is something you enjoyed. Matthew Dix is the author of Storyworthy and 50-time Moth Story Slam champion and six-time Grand Champion. Now, what does that mean? What is the Moth Story Slam? And this is a touch of a trite comparison, but it's kind of the Liga BBVA equivalent of storytelling in the USA. And this is less trite and more accurate. Matthew Dix is the Lionel Messi of storytelling. So he is arguably the best storyteller in the world, which is just a remarkable thing to have against your name. He wears many hats, all of them in education. He's a teacher, an author, a performer, and a writer. And his book, Storyworthy, had both an emotional effect on me, but more importantly, was a huge inspiration and a significant motivator for me to create a podcast or a YouTube video or to write online. You, as you've seen on the website, there's hundreds of articles there. Most of them just existed on Word documents in my computer. Um, but although Matthew doesn't explicitly make this sort of argument, there was just something about the homework for life and the ability to tell better stories that encouraged me to just release what I was doing into the public. And so you've heard what you can expect from the chat. I really hope you enjoy it. I'm not going to ramble on anymore. And so leave that spicy review. And here is Matthew Dix. Well, Mr. Dix, Matthew, welcome. How are you, mate? I'm very good. Thanks. Nice to see you. Cheers, mate. Uh, really pleasure for you to for, to for you to join me this morning. Uh, it's six a.m. over where you are. Where are you actually? Uh, Connecticut. Okay, there you go. So, it's, uh, what's that? The eastern Mid- side of the United States. Okay, <laughs> nice. Um, and then it's a nice, you know, lunchtime for me here in Stockholm. But uh, <laughs> you wrote a book called Story Worthy. Um, you also have done lots of other work, but at least how I was introduced to you and your brain and your ideas was through this wonderful book, Storyworthy, um, which is what I want to obviously speak about with you today. But something caught me off guard as I was reading about your biography first. Like, are you somehow connected to the English monarchy? You're the Lord of Sealand. And the more I looked into this, I was just like, what is going on here? So do you want to tell us about that? <laughs> Sure. 
you know, it's a, something that annoys my wife, actually. So Sealand is uh, a military platform off the coast of England. They were built during World War II to, you know, protect from the Luftwaffe when they were attacking. And the oddity about these military platforms is they were both abandoned after the war, but they're outside the international zone of, you know, where you get to own the ocean. So they're sort of an international waters. And so 60 years ago, a guy landed on one of these platforms and declared it his own and declared it his own country. And at one point, the British actually attempted to expel him from from the platform and couldn't manage to do it. So he declared his own country. So he he sort of decided that the way to make money in order to stay on this platform was he would sell lordships and ladyships and baronies and things like that to this country, which really hasn't been recognized by, by any other country. And uh, I saw this on the internet and said, wow, that sounds great. I could become the Lord of Sealand, which is in this man's mind, at least a country and, you know, some sort of entity that exists in international waters. So I spent the $50 to get the plaque and, and all of this, which my wife found out about and said, why are you wasting $50 on nonsense? Come on, it's not a waste. And I said, <laughs> it's not a waste. I said, you know how many times like I'll be at a show or on a podcast and someone will ask me about it and I get to tell this funny story about this guy on a platform? Mm -hmm. Plus, it's one of the best gifts you can ever give a guy, I think. Yeah. Like, when someone says, like, I need a Father's Day idea, I say, give them the Lord of Sealand. Like, it's so nice to just walk around knowing you're the Lord of something. Are you ever so introduced as Lord Dix? <laughs> <laughs> no, I have not been introduced as Lord Dix. That's... <laughs> perhaps a, an aspirational goal that I will have now. Yeah, certainly. Or if they were to be so cheeky and put like a third word in between the two of them. <laughs> yeah, well, it's a, it is a, it's a challenging last name. Um, oh, it's a terrific last <laughs> name, mate. Um, yes, it is yeah. now. When I was like 12, it was challenging. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. I, I mean, I'm called Hog, um, which in Australia doesn't mean anything. Um, it means pig, right? But no one really gives a shit. Yeah. But apparently for my father, when he was in America, when he was a younger man, it was actually a problem for him. People were really awkward about introducing him as Professor Hogg. Uh, you know, they, yeah. they tried calling Professor Philip or something like this, uh, which is his first name. Um, but yeah, I guess maybe Americans are a little bit more squeamish about uh, anything that's too close to like uh, sexual like a sexual inflection at times, but I guess that is falling away, isn't it? Well, I'd like to think so, but actually in the UK, I published my novels under Matthew Green because my UK publisher asked me to change my last name because they felt that my current last name, Dix, is too potentially offensive to British sensibilities. So I actually, I'm it goes the other way, at least in the UK. I'm shocked. I thought yeah. the last country in the world that wouldn't embrace Dix... Uh, would be the United Kingdom. Nassim Taleb is a very famous quote about, well, definitely not very famous, just something that I remember from him when he said it. If you're familiar with him, maybe you are. Um, yeah. In The Better Procrustes, one of his aphorisms is, um, the great thing about England is, about being an author in England, is that there is nothing so bad you can do that will not destroy your reputation, which is him just sort of, you know, <laughs> making the comment that, the salaciousness of England uh, is accepted. I mean, they're the home of the tabloid, right? And the real gotcha journalism really started there. I'm shocked that they didn't want Dix. Yeah. Uh, Dix is almost a tick of approval. It's like, here we go. Let's get Dix in like big, bold writing at the top of this book and it'll at least draw people's attention. I, I would have thought so, but apparently not. 
No, I guess not. It made my wife happy. I took her maiden name as my author name, and that made her sure. happy. So it was an opportunity to please my wife. So that's true. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah. The, so you're the Lord of Sealand. Okay. Uh, well, that makes a lot of sense. That's definitely something I'd love to do as well. I did hear uh, along similar lines. There's like you know private estates in Scotland, and people will buy say you know a square meter of it, and then they can officially become the Lord of X um, and stuff like uh... that. I'm going to look into that. That's yeah, great. That's Scottish, even more uh, recognition as well. Yeah. Well, that's actually land too, not some military <laughs> platform in the middle of the ocean. That feels a little more legit. Um, Matthew, <laughs> I want to read a quote from the beginning of the book. Um, and this, I think, just does a terrific job at summarizing the importance of storytelling, right? So I teach professors, school teachers, ministers, priests, and rabbis who want to improve their lectures and sermons and hold the attention of their audiences. I teach storytelling to people who want to improve their dating skills. I teach people who want to be more interesting at the dinner table. I teach grandfathers who want their grandchildren to finally listen to them. I teach students who want to tell better stories on their college applications. I teach job applicants who are looking to improve their interview skills. I teach people who want to learn more about themselves. So I say that as the preamble to say, we all know that person who is, you know, the natural storyteller very charismatic, you know, they can draw the attention in any room and you, and you sort of remember what they say. And this isn't because of some predisposition or whatever. Maybe they were in a household that really encouraged these sort of skills and they just implicitly learned it growing up, something like this. Um, but if you're not one of these people, uh, you can definitely be pigeonholed into this corner of like, well, I'm just not a very good storyteller. And that's like a really... That, that can manifest into further things like maybe I'm not that interesting. Maybe I don't have good stories to tell. You know, maybe I'm a bit boring. And, and that is for sure that afflicts 99% of us because only 1% of the people get to be the natural charismatic storytellers. Anyway, um, Storyworthy reaffirms that you can in fact become a good storyteller. It, it, it's not something that's innate or, or predisposed. Now, yourself have now been, you know, recognized and given the authority as a good storyteller because you've won a lot of storytelling competitions wrote a book about this subject however i wanted to ask um where on the spectrum naturally did you fall on the good storyteller were you naturally good or did it come to you it's interesting i used to think i was naturally good you know i used to sit in workshops with people and i would say i got lucky at the age of 39 that I started doing something mm -hmm. that I was just naturally good at. You know, I took a stage, I won my first competition. I, I started winning quite a bit right away. And people recognized me right away as, you know, one of those naturally good storytellers. And then one day in a workshop, my wife was in the back of the room and I said this thing that I, I got lucky that I fell into this thing at 39 and that I'm good at it. And from the back of the room, she said, is that what you tell people? And I said, well, well, yeah. It's not like I went to mm. school to become a storyteller. And my wife pointed out to me, she said, well, first of all, you're an author. You've published novels. And I've been writing every single day without missing a mm -hmm. day since I was 17 years old. She said, you don't think that all of that time playing with story and writing novels and all the things you've learned about how stories work didn't assist you? And I said, oh, well, that's a good point. Maybe that did help. And then she said, she kept talking. She said, and what about you being a DJ? for the last 20 years who stand up in front of weddings for 20 years speak extemporaneously to a bunch mm -hmm. of people that kind of don't want to listen to you you know half of them are drunk and you've managed to like find a way to 
engage them with your voice. You don't think that helped the first night you took the stage? Like the fact that mm-hmm. you're never frightened in mm-hmm. front of a crowd, you don't think that helps at all? And I said, yeah, that's a good point too. And then she said, and you've been a teacher for more than 20 years. You stand in front of the worst audience there ever was, which is 10-year-old kids, and you have to engage and entertain at all times. And all you do mm-hmm. is tell them stories throughout the day to keep them learning. She said, you don't think all of that came, you know, assisted you in what you've been doing? And I just remember sitting in front of this class going, I guess I've been learning yeah. how to do this for a long time unintentionally. So it's hard to parse it out because I do know as a kid, I was the person who would tell stories, you know, as a as a younger person. The way I've always managed to, like, attract the attention of a girl is I stand next to them as long as possible and I tell stories and try to make them laugh. So it was something I was doing early on. I don't know how effective I was compared to today. I suspect it's it's probably somewhere in the middle, but it's difficult to really say whether I was naturally good at a young age or all of this work that I've been unconsciously doing. Yeah, I love that, um, so how your wife is just stripping you bare in front of this classroom you're supposed to be the authority in front of. <laughs> yeah. Not the um, first time, nor the last time will she do that. So yeah, that makes, obviously, that intuitively makes a lot of sense. You know, even though you weren't intentionally building the skills and repertoire, you were doing loads of iteration, figuring out what people responded to, what they didn't respond to. And I suppose you also had the, the benefit of being able to say the same thing many times to, to, to refine it. And so when you did step up 39 on the mock yeah. stage, you could absolutely kill it. Um, but you're saying you therefore don't think you were actually a natural storyteller. You instead just happened to be doing all these things which developed the skills to the point where you were a good storyteller. Yeah, I think the one thing I had going for me very early on is I've always been a naturally vulnerable person. At a young age, Mm. with parents who really didn't pay a lot of attention to me, something that I figured out early on was that if I say the things that most people are Mm. unwilling to say, I will get a positive response. So I was always the person willing to share Mm -hmm. my stupidities, my failures, my embarrassments. You know, I remember when I was a teenager getting excited when I did something stupid, because then I knew when I was around my friends again, I would have a new and entertaining story to tell. So, you know, my friend Andy once told me I live out loud. Essentially, anything that happens to Matt, he will talk about in any way whatsoever. It kind of doesn't matter how terrible it was. And I did that as an early, as an, as a really early aged kid, you know, so I think I was naturally vulnerable. I didn't have those barriers that I know so many people have in terms of worrying about what other people are going to think about them. You know, that, that is both a positive and a negative. My wife often points out too, mm-hmm. like it's legitimate that I kind of don't care what anyone thinks of me, which yeah, can be really sure. powerful or really terrible depending on the context that we're in. So that early on was something I understood. Whether I had the skills to put these stories together or not, I'm not quite sure. I imagine also there was some embarrassing moments where you maybe were too vulnerable and you had to realize that, wait a minute, there is a sort of, there is a there is a limit to how much people actually want to hear about my stories or my failures. You know, some things can get too real. I'm just thinking of when I was also a younger person um, I like how you said that you're naturally vulnerable. I think that that actually resonates with me quite a lot. Now I wasn't as much of a storyteller as, as, as you were, but I at least 
would never feel weird about sharing something awkward or dumb that I did or happened. But there was definitely a line where there were some things you didn't necessarily want to say. Did you have these really embarrassing, awkward moments to like iterate to the point where you knew where the line was? That's interesting. I, I truly, I can't remember one. You know, I was always good as a kid at, you know, using language in a way that sort of buffered those situations. I'm good at euphemisms, mm. you know, so you know, even if it came to something really awkward, I would often speak of it in a, with a metaphor, with a simile, you know, I, I would speak around it nice, rather yeah. than speaking to it. You know, I know that when I was a kid, very young, I was writing political cartoons. You know, I was like, it. I was writing political cartoons at like 10 or 11. Uh, I was doing it Easter one day, I was writing these things about Reaganomics, you know, and and the problems with the economy and sort of, again, no one was really paying attention to me. My parents, nobody, even teachers were not paying attention to me, but my aunt actually noticed me writing these political cartoons and she scooped them up at the end of Easter. And she sent them, then she sent them to me just a couple of years ago. She said, I want you to know you were doing this when you were like 10 or 11, but nobody was paying mm. attention. And I kind of remember doing that, but I don't remember it fully. So I suspect I had some facility with language that was very helpful to me. I'm also an auditory learner. Okay and not a visual learner in any way. So I can spend the whole day with... Did you explain the difference? Uh, well, people learn uh, in a variety of ways. One of the ways is, for me, I can learn through hearing. I remember everything that's said to me. That's why I was great. I was a college debate champion. When you say something to mm -hmm. me, I can repeat it right back to you, and I can repeat the bit of it that will sort of ruin your argument. I'm really good at remembering everything right, right. I said. It makes me very annoying when you have to argue with me. But I'm not a visual sure. <laughs> learner. So like I can spend all day with my wife, turn my back to her, and I can't tell you what she's wearing. And I have a little bit of face blindness where if I meet someone, I just saw someone on the street the other day, and it's someone I work with. But because she was mm -hmm. out of context with me, when she started speaking to me, I didn't know who she was at first until she had said a few sentences and her voice, the sound of her voice triggered who she was to me. So Wow, that's quite extreme. Yeah, it is. I know. My wife says you can line up 10 brunettes in a line, including her, and I wouldn't be able to pick her out of the lineup, which is not true, but there's oh, absolute truth that, in man. what she's saying. You know, it, it's just the way I am. I just don't remember uh -huh. anything I see, but I remember everything I hear. And I think mm -hmm. as a kid, that really probably helped me a lot in terms of language, being able to use language. It, it didn't yeah, help sure. me in regards to remembering what anything ever looked like. You know, I, I didn't recognize people and I couldn't do things like tie knots in Boy Scouts because that was a visual memory task that was really right. challenging to me. Right. But I think my auditory memory is probably very helpful to me too in that regard. Mm. So it definitely sounds like you were maybe more of a naturally in inclined storyteller uh, or at least someone well acquainted with language yeah. to be able to use it, turn it around, reshape Probably. it. Probably. Um, and so... That is, you might be on the, uh, naturally on the spectrum towards a more uh, good storyteller, but there is still hope for those who aren't, yes. you know, like maybe my mate Tavo, who, um, you know, such a lovely person, but not necessarily a talker and definitely not someone who wants to share anything about their own life or their own experiences. <laughs> it has to be ripped out of them right. with force. Um, but there's still hope for, for, for even someone like that on the other end of the spectrum, not naturally a storyteller, because they can learn from story worthy uh, and iterate themselves how to actually tell a good story. So 
I wanted to I wanted to ask are all the ideas in the book original to you um like did you lean because I don't think there's much uh, literature in this sort of field did you invent or put language to these concepts a lot yourself um yeah, yeah. uh when I started teaching adults how to tell stories it wasn't something I wanted to do initially because I teach children all day but eventually people asked me often enough that I agreed to do it once and then I'll never do it again and you know, now I do it for a living. Mm. But what I ha- realized I had to do was I had to look at the things that I was already doing on stage and pull it apart. I had sort of internalized all of the things that are in that book and, and many things beyond it. I was already doing those things, but I was doing it on an unconscious level. You know, mm-hmm. I understood that the beginnings and ends of stories had to be in opposition to each other. I just inherently understood that. But I had never vocalized it before until I started listening to adults tell me stories so that I could help them with their stories. And it Mm -hmm. became clear to me really quickly that people just didn't understand how a story worked. And I understood how it worked, but didn't have any language to explain it. So that book is really a reflection of three years of teaching, teaching adult students how to tell stories and finding the ways to make them understand what I was doing. And so one of the things I did right away is I started listening to my own stories and I started listening to the things that I was doing. And I thought, oh, well, I always, I always have a physical location when I'm telling a story. Why would you not want someone to set the scene? And -hmm. I realized, oh, nobody ever really does that. That's not a thing that people seem to understand. And Mm -hmm. so as I started to dissect my own stories and I started to listen to the problems and other people's stories, I started to figure out well, this is what I do. And this is sort of how I should present it. A big part of the success of this book has been, I've been an elementary school teacher for 23 years. So I understand how curriculum works. I understand how to build a curriculum in small, repeatable parts. I understand how to front load the most important things in the beginning and taper off with the least important things as we move along in the instruction. Mm -hmm. So all of that really helped me too. So that when I was listening to people and listening to myself, I was really pulling it apart in the same way I'd pull apart a long division problem to teach my students. I'd look at long division and say, well, I know how to do it, but now I have to teach my kids how to go step by step to do it themselves. I took the same approach to storytelling. Nice. Um, and uh, there really are some terrific parts of it as well. Something like the the backpack, uh, I think about a lot actually when I tell stories, because that's, that's kind of like how you keep someone interested, you know, make sure they, uh, like they, they give a shit all the way to the end. And then obviously the five second moment, which um, is something I really uh, want you to elucidate more on. But before we get to that, um, there's a big difference between presenting a story on stage and then telling a story to a group of friends. Do you agree with this statement? Yes, absolutely. I mean, when you tell a story to friends, you're going to be interrupted, first of all. So you have to be prepared for that. (laughs) You're going to get clarifying questions and, and all of this business. But it's a less formal version of the story that you're telling to friends, but I like to say they're sort of cousins to each other. Mm-hmm. You know, I like to think that the stories I tell on stage are very similar to the stories I will tell to my friends, certainly more formal, certainly more prepared, but uh, it should still sound on stage like I'm talking to you as if we're having dinner almost, you know, it should be a a conversational approach to storytelling and not sort of what my wife calls a performancy mm-hmm. approach to storytelling, which she despises. And I also do not like, but not to the degree that she really. Can, can you give it. an example of, of, of that? Like how, 
it might be obvious when someone is overperforming something, but uh, is there a little bit more to it than that? Yeah, it's things like when people stand on a stage and they open their story with unattributed dialogue. So they'll open with a sentence. It'll be like, they'll stand on stage, they'll take a breath, and then they'll say, John, it's time for dinner, my wife yelled. And that's just weird sure. because like in real life, if you said, how was your day, Matt? I wouldn't say, Matt, it's time for dinner, my wife yelled. You'd just never speak to me again. That would be a weird way to open a conversation with just random dialogue. Right. And yet people think that's an interesting way to begin. I know why they do. It's because when you get taught how to write in school, you get taught by people who are not writers, but people who, who imagine what writers right. do. And so I have heard teachers tell kids, oh, start with dialogue. That's really engaging. And I always think, no, it's not. It's weird. Like, it's just not the way people speak. It's not the way you should open something. They love onomatopoeia too. They love to start their stories with, boom, the door opened. But again, if we were having breakfast and you said, how was yesterday, Matt? I wouldn't start with, boom, the yeah. door opened. You wouldn't have breakfast with yeah. me anymore. You know, or people... um they sort of work out their movements. We saw this happening just recently in New York. I was competing against somebody and on the street, I was watching him practice his story and he was practicing his synchronized hand movements to go along with his story. And I thought, well, I'm going to beat you because you're going to look weird. Right. And people who look weird don't win storytelling mm -hmm. competitions because you can't be vulnerable and authentic if you have already pre-prepared your hand movements. So that's the kind of stuff that makes you very performancey and not very natural. Lots of other things mm -hmm. too, but but those things in particular can really kill you as a mm. storyteller. And I interrupted you as you were explaining the difference between on stage and at a dinner party. Oh yeah, so I guess on stage, I am trying to hold the audience's attention to a greater degree. When I'm at a party and I'm with my friends and I'm telling a story, the assumption is they're going to listen to me. They're also my friends. So that means they like me and will tolerate me even if my story sure, is boring. Sure. That is why so many bad storytellers exist in the world. <laughs> Most people only tell stories to people who love them, right? So if you're only telling stories to people who like and love you, they will put up with bad storytelling all mm -hmm. day long. I tell stories to strangers, you know, hundreds of strangers at a time they have no reason to want to like me or want to listen to me. So when I'm on stage, I am attempting to speak in such a way that I hold their attention at every second because I know I can lose it mm -hmm. at any second. Whereas at a party, I'm not so worried about that. So, you know, the idea that I have to keep them wondering at all time at a party does not really exist as much as it does on the stage. There's more demands from the stage there than there is at a party. So I was hoping we might be able to get a, a flavor for what we're talking about here. Are you comfortable with telling your stories on podcasts and stuff like this? Oh yeah, sure. Yeah. Okay. So if you'll allow me to, to preamble and then ask you uh, to tell this is going to suck. However, so, um, when you're 12 years old, you're stung by a bee and then found by paramedics, not breathing, no heart beating. When you're 14, you're saved from a burning house from some firefighters. When you're 17, you die in a car accident. When you're 22, jailed for a crime you didn't commit. Uh, same year, gun pressed to your head with a trigger being pulled multiple times in an armed robbery whilst working in McDonald's. That's fucking wild. And then 36, your entire career and reputation threatened um, with destruction. So these are all moments that we would think wow that's fodder for great stories like that they're, they're that's crazy matthew you know how did you get through that 
But then you make the point with this is going to suck that the massive moments, uh, they might seem obvious fodder for stories, but it's actually the little things that make the best stories. And that's the five second moment. So I, with that preamble, I was hoping you could tell us that this is going to suck sure. a story. I haven't told this one in a while, but it's good. All right. So it's December 23rd, 1988. I'm 17 years old. I'm stepping out of a record store, which is a brick and mortar facility where we once purchased music in a physical form. I've got a shopping bag in my hand. And as I turn right onto the sidewalk, I see my friend Pat walking towards me. Pat sees my shopping bag and he asks me what's inside. And I tell him it's a Christmas present. It's a surprise Christmas present. It's actually a surprise Christmas present for our friend Benji, who was my best friend. Pat looks at me a little weird. And I've learned to pay attention to this look. He's only 14 or 15 years old at the time, but he's already cooler than I will ever be in my entire life. And I have learned that when Pat looks like this to me, I need to pay attention. Pat tells me, guys don't buy Christmas presents for other guys. He tells me, guys especially don't buy surprise Christmas presents for other guys. He tells me he's had multiple girlfriends at a time for long periods of time, and he's never bought any of them anything. So the fact that I've gone out on this day to buy Benji a surprise Christmas present is weird. I am now feeling very self-conscious about the betta fish in the backseat of my car. The surprise Christmas present I bought for Pat like half an hour ago at the pet store. And now the comic books I bought for Coog, the sweatshirt I bought for Lisa, all of these surprise Christmas presents that I have now filled the backseat of my car with. And I know Pat's right. It is weird that a 17-year-old kid has gone out and bought Christmas presents for his teenage friends. But it's been a long time since I've had a good Christmas. And I've decided that this year is going to be different. I'm a senior in high school, getting ready to graduate, but I'm also a McDonald's manager. I make $5.25 an hour, and I am the richest person in the world who I know. And I've spent the last two or three months saving all of my money so I could go out on this day and buy the Christmas I have always wanted. A lifetime of childhood poverty and now my parents' failing marriage have made the last few holiday seasons, honestly, times I just wish had never happened to begin with. So this year is going to be different. I am going to have presents and I'm going to have the Christmas I've always dreamed of. I need to get home now. My shopping is finished. I, I have to get home because the betta fish needs to get out of this cold car and get into the house. But mostly I have to get home because I have a shift at McDonald's in a little while and I need my uniform. I'm running late. I've never shopped in my life. I've never actually had money in my life. So I never understood how long it can take and how awful shopping can be. And so I've got all of the presents piled into my car. It's my mother's car. I'm driving a 1976 Datsun B210. It is a car about the size of a box of Pop-Tarts. And I'm driving through the town of Menden, Massachusetts, heading home. It's this beautiful country town, and it's snowing. It's the first snowfall of the year. The lawns are turning white, and every house is decorated for Christmas with the twinkling lights and the, and the ornaments. And as I drive through this little country town through the snow, it's like driving by picture postcards of Christmas. And as I drive, I start to really believe in my heart that this is going to be the Christmas I've always been looking for. I come up a hill, and as I come down the backside of that hill, my car starts to slide in the snow and ice. 
that's collected on the road. I start sliding into the opposite lane. I look up and I see a white Mercedes Benz coming right at me. In the seconds it takes for our two cars to collide, a bunch of thoughts run through my mind. They say that time will slow down or even stop in these moments, and it's absolutely true. The first thought I have is, I'm not wearing my seatbelt, and I always wear my seatbelt. But in the rush to get home and the excitement over shopping, I've forgotten to put my seatbelt on on the worst day of my life to forget. The second thought I have is I've always been told to steer into the skid when this happens. It occurs to me in this moment, I don't know what the fuck that means. I still, to this day, do not know what steer into the skid means. And the third thought that I have, it's just one sentence. I say it out loud. It's five words. This is going to suck. And it does. When our cars collide head on, I'm thrown forward and my chin hits the steering wheel. It knocks the entire bottom row of my teeth out in one chunk and sends them to the back of my mouth. But I continue forward and I go through the windshield forehead first. But I don't get fully ejected from the car because my legs surge forward at the same time. My right leg becomes embedded in the air conditioning unit right down to the bone. And my left leg hits the emergency brake release. It knocks off that plastic handle, but the post skewers right through my knee. And then my chest comes forward and it hits the steering wheel. It breaks ribs and knocks all of the air out of my body. It happens in a second. And then shock, like blessed shock, just descend upon me. It takes away all the pain and all the fear. I managed to pull my head out of the windshield and I pull my legs out from the dashboard. I actually get out of the car. I'm sort of standing by the door, half crumpled, holding onto the door for support when I see the woman from the Mercedes Benz running over to me. She's completely unharmed. Her seatbelt and the size of her car have protected her, but she takes one look at me, vomits, and passes out on the side of the road. The next people to arrive just after that, it's a pickup truck full of kids, and the kids are in the back of the pickup, and they're jumping out before the truck even comes to a stop. And the first kid to get to me, he's somebody just about my age. He grabs me by my bloody jean jacket and he lays me down in the mud and the snow on the side of the road. He looks me over and then he gets really close to my ear and he whispers to me. He says, dude, you're fucked. It is the most accurate medical assessment I'm going to receive on that day. The next person to arrive is a police officer. When he finds me, he takes his jacket off and he lays it on top of me to keep me warm. He doesn't know my ribs are broken and I I can barely breathe. It feels like it weighs a thousand pounds on my chest. I'm looking up at a white sky and the snow is really starting to fall now. So I close my eyes. When I open my eyes again, I'm in the back of an ambulance as a young woman straddling my waist. She's pounding on my chest, which is on fire now. And there's a man forcing a clear plastic tube down my throat and I'm coughing and she's shouting, he's back, he's back. And I'm wondering who is back and where did he go and where the hell am I and where are we going? And I'll find out later, much, much later, that I'm back. That for about a minute, my heart stopped beating and I stopped breathing, but now I'm back. And so now I'm in the emergency room and there's doctors and nurses all around me trying to keep me alive. There's nurses with tweezers pulling hundreds of pieces of glass out of my forehead. And dental surgeons come in and they grab that chunk of teeth that had been floating around my mouth the whole time. They wire them down into my jaw. It's the most painful thing that's ever happened to me. And then there's doctors working on my knees, prepping me for surgery. But I hear a nurse tell me that it's December 23rd and surgeons are hard to come by. A nurse comes over and she asks me for my name. 
they don't know who I am. They've cut all of my clothes off at the accident scene. And in the process, they lost my wallet. So nobody knows who I am. So I tell her my name, I give her my phone number, and then I give her the phone number for McDonald's. I tell her she needs to call because I'm supposed to be at work in a little while. She needs to tell them I'm not going to be there. She looks at me like I'm crazy, and I kind of am. Like, I, I was literally dead a little while ago now, and now I'm worried about my shift at McDonald's. But I tell her, Linda Diaz, it, she's going to need help in the drive through It doesn't run well without me. You need to call McDonald's. We go back and forth a little bit, and finally, she agrees to call. And so I'm lying on, I'm lying on a gurney in the middle of an emergency room, surrounded by people who barely know my name. And as they're working on me, I can see their faces begin to shift, especially the nurses. And I know what they're thinking. They're starting to think the same thing that I am thinking. Where the hell is this kid's parents? I've been in this emergency room for a very long time, and I haven't seen anyone who I know. We'll find out later that when that nurse went to call my parents, my stepfather answers the phone. And when he finds out that I'm in stable condition, they decide to go check on the car before they check on me. So I won't see my parents before I'm rolled into surgery that day. So I'm surrounded by human beings, but I feel as alone as I have ever felt in my life. But it turns out I'm not alone because that nurse also called McDonald's like she promised. And the manager on duty, the one who took the call, he told my friends what happened. And an old fashioned phone tree began with friends calling friends calling friends. And now they're coming to the hospital. They're in that waiting room just outside the emergency room. And I know it because I can hear them because they're teenagers and they're loud. It's a room filled with 15 and 16 and 17-year-old kids in ripped jeans and concert t-shirts. And there's a 14-year-old boy in there who's cooler than all of them. And the first person to arrive to the hospital that day is my best friend, Benji. And when the nurses realize that I'm not going to see my parents before I'm rolled into surgery, they roll me to the other side of the emergency room and they prop open these double doors and they let my friends stand in the doorway. And the boys say incredibly inappropriate things to make me laugh. And the girls tell me they love me. And I can hear them chanting my name as I'm rolled into surgery that day. None of the gifts that I buy my friends that day ever make it into their hands. Everything is lost in the accident. And the only casualty of the day is the betta fish. It does not survive the accident. But it turns out that Pat was wrong on that sidewalk when he told me that friends don't get friends surprise Christmas presents. Because my friends gave me the best gift of my life that day. They gave me the gift of family. And until I meet my wife 15 years later, they're the only family I have and the only family that I need. Thank you. Nice. Beautiful story. Does it still, does it still pull your heartstrings a little bit? Every damn time. It's yeah, crazy. It's a- you know, I've probably told that story 200 times. I use it in workshops all the time for, because it works mm-hmm. well for a lot of reasons. And it's the most important moment of my life or one of the most important moments of my life. And, I, I can't even say sentences in that story without mm-hmm. feeling it. So, well, let's talk yeah. about why it's the most Crazy. important part, because uh, like I said in the preamble, it's not because you were dead, which is wild. It's right. because <laughs> the curtains pulled back and you realize that you are in fact loved and there are in fact people who care about you. And that 
means more than anything else. And that's the five second right. moment. Um, yeah. It's the idea that no one can connect with the idea of going through a windshield mm -hmm. or dying in the back of an ambulance. So trying to make the story about that is just ridiculous. It's funny. Cause when I tell that story to an audience, whether it's a workshop of people or an audience in a theater, people become mm -hmm. emotional all the time, you know, more emotional than me quite often but they never are emotional sure. when I die in the story. I always tell people in the workshop, I say, I watched you cry when my friend showed up, but when I died in the story, they mm -hmm. just blink at me. They just they just take in the information that I went through a windshield and my legs were ripped open. And if they're very empathetic, they might wince, or if they have a good imagination, you know, they might wince a little bit, but not wincing on my, my behalf, just wincing at the thought of that right. gore, you know, that, right. that horror of what happened to me. Because nobody can connect with that. It's just not a it's not a thing that people can connect to. It's one of the reasons I always hesitate to tell that story in workshops, even though it works really well for lots of reasons. My fear is that people think something like mm -hmm. that has to happen to you in order to tell a good story, where 95% of the stories that I tell are tiny little moments in our lives that most people would not even notice as significant because most stories actually just take place in our heads. The moments where we actually, something fundamentally important shifts in us, it often happens in our minds. And if you're watching it happen, if you're an outsider watching this moment happen, you wouldn't even know that something important is happening. That's mm. most of the stories I tell. So you don't need to go get in a car accident or get arrested or be homeless mm. to, in order to tell a good story. In fact, those mm. are the hardest. Well, let's, let's expand on that for a little bit then, because uh, obviously the whole, well, not obviously, but as you state, um, for anyone who's listening, who hasn't read the book, it's not obvious, but the whole story pivots and relies on that five second moment. So if you had stopped the story at the point where you're calling McDonald's, it's like a funny little ending. Um, and it's still a memorable story because it's very well crafted and it still is impactful and all these reasons, but it's not an amazing story until at the end you get the whole emotional sort of character development if you want to you know critique it but yeah so mm -hmm. five second moments is everything that's that's a big takeaway how does one go about cultivating five second moments because this is something i intentionally tried to do when i finished your book i did the homework for life admittedly i didn't continue it but i did do it for a while and i found a few but I tell you, I didn't find as many as you sort of said that I would. So how can we think about this a little bit? Sure. So when we talk about these moments, I, I, I make the argument that every story is about a five second moment. Really, mm -hmm. it's a one second moment. I'll stretch it to five for most people. But what it is, is the idea that the changes that we're looking to describe in stories, because that's what a story is. That's about change over time. It's either a moment of realization. I've changed my mind about something or transformation. You know, I've suddenly become a different person. The story that I just told you is realization. I realized I had a family. I realized I am loved, right? Those moments are instantaneous. There's stuff that leads up to the moment of change, but the change itself is like the flipping of a coin. It, it happens instantaneously. I don't feel loved. And now I feel loved. You know, I used to think this, and now I think that. I used to think this of myself, now I think that of myself. Movies and books are the same way. All of these changes happen in an instant. Lots and lots of stuff leads up to the moment, but this is the moment where something happens. 
So those are those five second moments. Those are the moments we're looking to describe. In life, what we're trying to do as we move through our lives is we're just looking for the moments when we suddenly feel or think a little mm -hmm. differently than we did before. And I, I use the word a little because sure. I really believe a little is enough. Like just a small change of mind, a small change of heart is enough to tell a story. And what we need to do as human beings, not even as storytellers, I think fundamentally as a human, it is a better life when you spend the time thinking about your life mm -hmm. and looking for these moments in order to find truth in your life that you're not seeing right now. You know, I think that the best storytellers in the world are slightly self-centered, actually are very self-centered, not in that negative way, but in that way yeah, that yeah. we are deeply curious about ourselves. We find they want to know why the they time the to they think are. about ourselves. And in this world, right, yeah, why you are the way you are. Mm -hmm. It's exactly, it's a question I ask myself mm -hmm. all the time. Why do you do the things that you do? Most people in the world spend an enormous amount of time thinking about their children, their parents, their families, mm -hmm. their neighbors, their colleagues, their job. They don't often say to themselves, well, I'm just going to spend mm -hmm. some time thinking about myself right now. That's what I actually do. And I, what I believe is a very healthy thing. I think we have to afford ourselves the opportunity to think about ourselves. Homework for life is one of those ways where you force yourself to reflect back upon your day. And over the course of time, I, I believe everyone will develop a lens for storytelling. I believe eventually everyone will be able to start yeah. to see stories in their Cause, lives. Because otherwise you, right you just forget about the times, don't you? Because ever, anyone can look back at who they were <laughs> five years ago and think, yeah, I I guess I thought about things differently then, which implies there's been changes, but you you don't you don't remember where the change happened unless it's like so extreme, like um, the story you just told. It's usually much subtler. It's like I had a and 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 forgive me if I'm strawmanning it, but you know I had a interaction with my barista who really just reminded me that the little things actually matter. Right. And that could be a five second moment if it's blanketed in a proper story. And that's such a tiny interaction, but it's not so trivial. It's, it's actually the case that those tiny interactions can work to change you. It doesn't have to be with your wife, your father, your best friend. It can be with a random person that you interact with. And, and like, um, I think what you say is, is, is very, uh, it, it resonates again with me a lot. Um, the idea of, trying to understand why you are the way you are it's uh it's not an easy thing to do really yeah. because you know only you can sort of really know and i'm not sure well you know it takes time too just earlier in the summer you know i have a son named charlie he's nine we went to play golf so i sat him down on this bench and i said i'm gonna go play pay the guy so i go pay the guy and when i come back to charlie he's pointing at a little plaque mm -hmm. on the bench and the plaque says like in memory of John, you know, and Charlie says, what's this? And I said, Oh, you know, John probably passed away. He liked to play golf here. His friends had this bench installed and put the plaque on so that they would always remember him. And Charlie says to me, when you die, I'm going to have a fountain built for you. And then when mommy dies, I'm going to have a fountain built right next to your fountain. Cause you're married. And then when you're both dead, you can uh, grant wishes from heaven when people throw pennies in the fountain. And yeah. so all of these things happen to me when he says that. First of all, I'm thinking, why, why do you constantly contemplate my death? <laughs> You're always talking about when I'm dead. Stop yeah. doing that. You know, I'm dealing with existential crises here. Don't do that. And then my second <laughs> thought was, who says I'm dying first? Why do you always kill me off before you kill mom off? That's 
also deeply upsetting. And then third, why do I have to have a job when I'm dead? Like, isn't it, aren't I doing enough here already when I'm dead? Now I have to find a way to grant wishes for people with pennies and fountains. All of that happens. But then the biggest thought mm-hmm. I have is I'm not going to get that fountain. It occurs to me instantaneously that as children, we make promises that as adults, we don't often keep, even mm-hmm. when those promises are completely doable and we still care about them. So I was thinking like, when I was a kid, I swore I would always have ice cream for breakfast. I still want ice cream for breakfast. I can have ice cream for breakfast, and yet I don't do it. You know, when I was a kid, I used to go to my grandparents' house, and they'd serve fruit cocktail from a can in that sugary syrup that I love so much on Christmas morning. And I asked my mother, can we have it in our house? And she said no. And when I was a, when I was a kid, I promised myself, I'm going to have fruit cocktail in a can when I'm an adult. I can do that, and I didn't do it. And my favorite car in the world is a Toyota 4x4. It's totally within my means to have a Toyota 4x4 in my life, still love the car, and yet I drive a Hyundai Tucson. So looking at Charlie that day, I thought, ugh, I'm not going to get a fountain Mm. because you're going to be just like me and not keep the promises of childhood. Now, that happened in June, and I knew it was a moment, and it didn't feel to me like it was enough of a story, but I just said to myself, being deeply curious about myself, I'm going to think about that. I'm going to keep it in my head. I'm going to keep it rolling around. What can I do with that? Why is that feel so important to me for some reason? Like it's an amusing moment. I knew it could entertain people, but it just felt more important to me. It was three days ago. Three days ago, it suddenly hit me. I was playing golf with my son. When I was a kid, no adult ever came to a sporting event with me, never was in attendance when I was competing in something and never helped me learn a sport. I had to do everything on my own. And when I was a kid, I promised myself that when I'm a parent, I'm not gonna do this to my kid. And suddenly I realized that even though I didn't do the ice cream or the fruit cocktail or the Toyota 4x4, I'm playing golf with my son. Like I'm keeping the most important promise I ever made to myself Mm -hmm. as a kid. I'm doing the thing for my son that was not done for me. I don't think that though, Mm -hmm. I don't realize that until three months after the bench, right? So if you're not a storyteller, what happens is you don't actually get to that final realization because you're not curious enough. But can you see how that moment for me, like there were tears in my eyes Mm -hmm. when I realized, oh my God, I played golf with Charlie. That is the most important promise. Tears in my eyes, I suddenly feel better about myself. Mm -hmm. Like suddenly the fruit cocktail and the Toyota 4x4 mean nothing to me because I'm just doing the most important thing. Those are the moments that happen to me all the time because I see things and I don't let go of them. I hold on to them. I let them roll around a while. And then I find the thing that I'm trying to say or the thing that I tend to think the back of our mind, you know, that unconscious part of our brain is trying to tell us all the time. I think there's a part of our brain that's always screaming at us to pay attention to things. And if we don't take a moment, if we don't take three months to yeah. continue to think about a bench and a boy, we just lose them. So I think we have to be deeply curious about our lives. That that uh, anecdote you just explained, um, really, it, it, it emphasizes that that's irrespective of whether you're ever going to tell someone Correct. that story. That, that's actually just a quality of life thing. That's, that's, a, that's a finding pleasure. Uh, even more pleasure than you already had playing golf with your son. It's like, you know, everything that your son means to you, you can now realize it even more so in that exact moment. And that's, 
Um, I mean, that's invaluable, right? Right. So talk to me about the um, importance of writing these things down because I imagine, because you are, I would presume, a practitioner of Homework for Life. Um, when uh, Charlie, right? Your son, Charlie. Yeah, Charlie. When, when, when Charlie a couple of months ago said he's going to build a fountain for you when, you when you're dead, you went home, I guess, and said, you know, this was a very memorable moment today. Right. And because it was written down, uh, can you em emphasize how important it is separating it from the swirl and putting it somewhere external to sit? Yeah, well, it has a couple benefits, I think. The first is, I just think that when you write things down, and you know, I'm writing these things down mostly in a spreadsheet in a series of five to six mm -hmm. sentences, it codifies it, you know, it allows your visual memory to, you know, mine is not very strong, but it allows you to see it. It sort of makes it a thing. You know, I mm -hmm. always tell storytellers that all the stories you think about in your head are meaningless unless you're speaking them out loud. All the stuff that swirls around in your brain means nothing unless you bring it to some reality, whether it's on a page, which creates something, or you're speaking it out loud, which serves the same purpose. So mm -hmm. I think that it, it makes it a more indelible moment in your life. You're much more likely to remember it. But then even if you're not able to remember it, you have now have a record of it. And that can be really useful. Uh, back in May of this year, one of my homework for life entries, very boring, seemingly was, it was the first night where we had a patio dinner with our neighbors. You know, we've got neighbors here, I can see their house from where I'm sitting and neighbors to our right. Mm -hmm. And both of those neighbors have little kids about our children's age. So all three backyards are one backyard and all of our children play together all the time. Oh, cool. And so That's back it. in May, we had all the neighbors on the patio for the first outdoor dinner of the season. And that's all I wrote was just a boring, like the, the moon was orange and everybody was happy. Mm -hmm. So two months, uh, two weeks ago, I discovered that the neighbors that in the house I'm looking at right now, they're getting a divorce. Like their marriage is over and it's been failing for two years. Mm -hmm. That same week, I discovered the neighbors to the right. They're also getting a divorce. And suddenly a moment in my homework for life, which would be totally forgettable and seemingly unimportant in May, everyone was on the patio looking now happy. Yeah. Now it's a story because I realized they were all pretending. The mm -hmm. only couple on that patio that was actually happy was me and Alicia. We mm -hmm. were sitting in the company of people whose, whose relationships were crumbling and we had no idea. And mm -hmm. in my mind, I don't know if this is going to be a story, but it was just that realization that you never know what's happening behind the front door in someone's house. You never know what's going on in someone's marriage. And to assume otherwise is crazy. So what was a moment that seemed unimportant and utterly forgettable suddenly becomes the first note in a story about us really deeply being worried that these families are going to move away from us and this one backyard from three backyards is going to evaporate when strangers mm -hmm. move in instead of the and people we love. Up. Yeah. So mm -hmm. you just never know what is going to be valuable and what is not and what moments are going to have meaning. So we just grab them all. We grab all the moments that feel like there's something. We put them down and we hope that someday something comes from them. Mm. I think what I'm going to do is create that um, or reaccess my Google spreadsheet and actually put it in the and make a blank copy and put it in the podcast description so people can really access it there because uh like i said i stopped doing it because like any sort of habit once you fall out of it you fall out of it um 
but I think speaking to you now is definitely going to be enough to to redo it because uh, one of the amazing points you've made, and you've made this on other podcasts before, so forgive me for bringing up um, old news, but um, you just you feel uh, you rem- you you forget chunks of time, right? So the last yeah. uh, year, I've lived in this city, Stockholm. I'm not a Swede. I moved here because of my girlfriend. We live in the suburbs. I don't necessarily have a community here. What I've been doing is like working to the bone, which is great. It's a great time for me to do it. I'm no complaints, but you know, the last 12 months, there aren't many exciting moments to take from it. However, I do realize, and I was thinking about this and preparing to speak with you, even every day things are happening. You know, we got a little kid. Uh, There was this amazing moment with uh, Emma's sister and her mother, you know, beautiful moment, which um, in itself is, is a memory, not just for me, but for them. And anyway, um, I just want to emphasize that I'm going to put that into the talk description and it is an amazing practice to just every day, find some highlights, put them down, let them swell. And the subconscious is an amazing piece of machinery. It's going to come back. Like you've said, with a few examples here and, um, hopefully bear some fruit. Even if you never tell us a story, uh, it's just going to add to your quality of life. Really? Um, yeah. Which is, and, and I'll add, don't, and, and, and I'll add, I wouldn't say the word highlights any moment. Mm. So low lights work sure. well too. Yeah. So, you know, it, what I always say is it's the most story worthy moment and you can have more than one. Mm. Most of my days now have more than one, mm. you know, it can be as simple as someone said something to you and that meant something to you, but it can be as something as stupid as the other day I was driving down my street and I looked up at a blue sky. And the thought entered my mind that I'm so glad the sky is blue because it's really a lovely color. Mm -hmm. We could have ended up with like a burnt orange sky, (laughs) you know, but instead we got blue and that's in my homework for life. It's never going to be a story I tell on stage, but a new thought entered my mind and a new thought is worthy of homework for life. You know, this mean game, I'll play it with you right now. Take your age, whatever it is, Mm -hmm. subtract nine, Mm -hmm. right? Whatever number you've come to imagine that year of your life Mm -hmm. like how much do you remember from that year of your life just nine years ago yeah not much (laughs) okay we throw away our memories like they're trash like they're meaningless and what ultimately happens is we're 80 and we say where did the time go and for me for with homework for life every day gets marked and so many people tell me myself included that when you do homework for life time slows Mm. down because every day suddenly has a little bit of meaning rather than throwing them all away. What happens is we go around the sun and we have four things to say about it. You're going to have and that's just um, a beautiful memoir to pass on to your kids one day because of that as well. You're going to have such a good yeah. memory of it. So, something I think about that I, um, uh, I think it's a great practice. Any sort of parent should write a memoir for their kids. Um, most people definitely shouldn't publish it for the world, but at least for their kids. It <laughs> um, doesn't be long, whatever. And I'm thinking with my own children, uh, to write, you know, a letter every single year on their birthday, sort of just, this is how you've changed this year. And this is you this year, whatever. And so it gets to the point yeah. when they're, you know, in their thirties and it's like, you've got a short story documenting this person's life. And, um, it's just another form of writing down our experiences, another form of homework for life, I guess, which could have beautiful consequences. Yeah. When my kids were young, actually the moment I discovered Alicia was pregnant, which I knew before she knew oddly. <laughs> I started writing to my kids and I did that for the first eight years of their life. And it's on a blog. Mm. It's, it's on a blog called greetings, little mm. one. Every single day 
day for eight years, I wrote to my wow. children. And then eventually someone offered to turn them into books. So I have these enormous books. There's six of them. And they're some of the favorite things my kids have because they can go back and look for the first time they walked. And I wrote about the first mm -hmm. time they walked, you know? And so that might be like a, a level of commitment that is too much mm -hmm. for most parents. But I will tell you, those books will be in our family for hundreds of years. They are bound and beautiful. And they're a record of That's my amazing. first, the first eight years of a kid's life, which is great because we don't remember our first eight years at all. So that mm -hmm. was the purpose of it. You know, I kind of regret stopping after eight years, but it just became. Oh, well, you didn't have to do it every day, did you? But that's really, um, that's amazing parenting. I really, I really think that's like a, such a great service to do your kids because hopefully as well, it almost does the reverse effect where they can understand you better. Um, and at the time, yes. obviously they, they won't, but when they're adults, I mean, that's, I, I wish, I wish my parents did just a semblance of that. They did absolutely nothing and they yes. both have terrible memories. So right. they don't know anything. I don't know my, anything mm -hmm. about my extended family, barely enough about them. And, and I know them to be interesting people, but not um, able to communicate why they are. And so, yeah, just as a service to kids, yeah, as you're well, right. I think it's an amazing thing. Yeah. They, there was a night when there was a time when I, I used to be married. I had, a I had a short marriage, got divorced and then married the love of my life. And we hadn't mm. told the kids that. And at the same time, Alicia had been engaged and came within two months of getting married to someone else before she called off the, the engagement mm -hmm. and ultimately married me. And we hadn't told the kids that. And so one night we decided that this will be the night we tell the kids that I was once married before and you were once engaged before. And when we sat down at dinner to tell them, Clara, my daughter goes, we already know that. We read that in Greetings Little One. You wrote, you wrote about that when we wow. were like four. And I said, I did? And she said, yeah, you wrote all about it. We already know it. And I went, all right, never mind. I guess we'll just eat dinner. But like, it's good. Like, it made me feel good that there's probably tons of things in that book, those books that mm -hmm. I've completely forgotten about, but now exist yeah. permanently for my No, kids. really, that's, that's yeah. a beautiful thing. Um, let's move it away back into bigger picture narrative, um, because we're talking here about this five second moment, what a story really is about, why it's memorable. And you have a uh, a very memorable chapter title. I wanted to say famous. I'm sure it's famous. Can you explain why Jurassic Park isn't actually about dinosaurs? <laughs> it's my favorite <laughs> thing to talk about <laughs> for, for all yeah. the movies like it, but this one works really well. So, you know, if you watch the movie Jurassic Park, you know, you would think it's about dinosaurs, but it's not. Uh, all the great movies are actually about something much more important than, mm -hmm. than what they seem to be about. Uh, so Jurassic Park is actually a movie about a man who can't be with the woman he loves. He can't really be connected with her fully because she wants to have children and he does not. And you discover it in the beginning of the movie. They're at a dig site. Uh, you know, they're both archaeologists and, and they're looking at a dinosaur, the image of a dinosaur. And this kid says it looks like a giant chicken, you know, and our hero, Alan Grant, he goes up to the kid and he's got this fossilized claw in his hand and he says this giant chicken would essentially rip you open and begin eating you while you're alive mm. and he scares the crap out of this kid and so then he walks away with his girlfriend ellie and um she says why did you do that to that kid why'd you scare the hell out of that kid and he said you know how i feel about kids they're they're smelly they're stupid they're expensive i don't like them you want one of those and she says well i don't want that one but yes i would like one that's it that's the, that's what the story is about ellie and adam Ke Ellie and Alan can't be mm -hmm. together because she wants kids and he doesn't. And so 
what happens over the course of the movie? Alan Grant ends up in Jurassic Park with two children. Like, it's not a mistake that he's the one who ends up with the two kids. And as you watch the relationship, at first he's annoyed with the kids. They touch expensive things. He yells at them not to touch things. They they do stupid things. He gets annoyed at their stupidity. He doesn't know how to do things. But as the movie progresses, he gets closer and closer to these children as he's trying to keep them alive. The end of the movie, I always say, takes place actually in a tree at night. They've climbed up a tree. They've just fed some plant-eating dinosaurs in a sweet little moment. And then he takes both kids in his arms. And the boy, Tim, he makes a joke. And it's the biggest laugh Alan gives of the entire movie. And he pulls Tim in closely. And then the girl, Lexi, she says, what if the bad dinosaurs come back tonight? And he says, I'll stay awake all night. And she says, all night? And he says, yes. And he pulls them in Mm. as close as you can be to two children. And as he pulls them in, that claw that he threatened the boy with at the beginning of the movie falls away. He's now let go of the thing that he used to think was most important, which was fossils and dinosaurs and this business. And now he's holding the thing that is the most important, which is children. And now he can be with his girlfriend and they can get married and be happy forever because he wants to have kids. That's what the movie's really about. Spielberg understands I can't make a movie about dinosaurs because everyone's made a movie about dinosaurs. And if I said, hey, Ryan, do you want to go to a movie where we watch a man who fundamentally doesn't want to have children over the course of the movie will discover a love for children? You'd say, no, thank you. But if I package Mm -hmm. that around dinosaurs, now you want to go see the movie. You might not Mm. even know that that was what the movie was about. But what I would argue is when you leave the movie, you think that was a good one. Like I've seen dinosaur movies before, but that was a really good one. And you'll trick yourself into believing it's CGI. It was like the the kitchen scene with the velociraptors. My argument will be, no, somewhere in the back of your brain, like you understood in a fundamental level that you actually watched a Mm -hmm. human story taking place, change over time. I used to be a guy who didn't want to have kids, therefore could not be with his girlfriend. Some stuff happened, and now I can be with her forever because I love kids. And that's um, what I think at the end you answered the, what I wanted to ask you, which was when I think about Jurassic Park, or if you poll the random person on the street, they remember the Velociraptors and the T Rex. They don't remember this um, character development. And I wanted to ask whether that was us, like, or yourself, just like cr- overcritically analyzing and saying, hey, this is actually what it was about. Or if it was, in fact, it's just this is your sort of subconscious emotional connection to the movie but it was great because we remember the dinosaurs and that makes it a little bit different to your story where the emotional pull at the end is is what's memorable surrounded by the car accident rather than what jurassic park is which is the car accident is memorable but the emotional pull like makes us love it yes my car accident is the is akin to the dinosaurs of jurassic park right it's the thing that draws people in it's the excitement it's the it's the uniqueness of the story Mm -hmm. in the same way the dinosaurs are the uniqueness of jurassic park but ultimately my story cannot be about a car Mm -hmm. accident because you can just turn on the news and see those all the time you know the other thing i always point about the car accident by the way is if we if we agree that stories are about these five second moments of realization or transformation it turns out that when you die i've done it twice now you don't actually know you're dying I did not have a moment of realization or transformation because I closed my eyes at Mm -hmm. some point I died. Mm -hmm. And then at some point I came back to life, but I was not aware of any of it. You can't tell a story about something you're fundamentally (laughs) unaware is happening to you. So, so I can't even make the story about that unless 
you know, or unless, unless you it was manufacture be some like light at the end of the tunnel moment that you had. <laughs> <laughs> right. Which just sadly did not happen. You know, the other thing about that story I'll add is I didn't know the story was mm -hmm. about my friend showing up in the emergency room at first. A director from the moth called me and said, hey, why don't you tell your car accident story? Because I had like gone through all my stories with her. And I said, yeah, but that's just a car accident story. Why would I want to tell that? And she said to me, what happened after the car accident? And I said, oh, you know what happened? My friend mm -hmm. showed up to the emergency room when my parents didn't. And as soon as I said that, I went, oh, that's what the story is, right? That was a moth producer being deeply curious about my life before I understood yeah. I needed to be deeply curious about my life. Right. So I didn't even have the story until someone asked me, what was the thing that happened after mm. you came back to life? And um, then I how much more time do you have, story. Matthew? Oh, okay. Lovely. Oh, as much okay. as um, no one's awake in my house. Yet, well, so I, because I did have a, uh, a <laughs> couple more prepared questions I would like to ask you. Um, okay. So I laughed out yeah, loud right when you uh, said the weather sucks story break um, because it's so goddamn true. And uh, you would have a hard time up here in Sweden uh, because it is it is just so fundamental and cornerstone to to social interactions. Um, but more so than just like a, a breaking the ice thing, um, it, it's 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 droned on and on and on and on and on. And I'm from Australia. The weather's always good there, so we don't talk about it. Here, the weather's never good, so that's all they talk about. How can one? How can one? without being sort of rude or, or just like dismissive engineer, more interesting, meaningful conversations into their lives. Uh, well, I do one of two things. I try to, I try to avoid the people who are boring. <laughs> I sure. just have people in my life who like to complain. That's the worst one for me. People who just complain, I just avoid them whenever I can. But the other thing you can do is you can change the subject. So if someone's droning on about the weather, the next thing I'll yeah. say is, here's a funny thing that my daughter said to me the other day. I won't even acknowledge the conversation about the weather. I don't, you know, I, I don't allow it to be something that comes out of my mouth. Mm -hmm. And instead, I just try to shift the conversation if possible. Mm. And that can be slightly effective. You know, you really can't say to people, you're talking about the weather again. That's not entertaining. It's mm -hmm. not engaging. It's purposeless. It's meaningless. Please stop. You know, I can say that to certain people in my life, but like I can count the number. Yeah, it, it's rude. Yeah. So I, I just say, try to shift the, try, try to shift the topic of conversation whenever you can allow them to have, say their piece, but don't acknowledge it as something that was important to you. Yeah. Um, this is a bit of a silly question, um, because there's no right answer, but I was wondering for yourself, is there a greatest story that has ever been told that you're intimately familiar with? So a, a story, a great, what do you mean? Greatest, greatest story, story ever told. Oh, <laughs> wow. Well, I mean, I heard Steve Zimmer, who's a great storyteller in New York, once tell a story about a snow fort that brought in sort of everything you would want in a story, you know, humor. A real story? Yeah, a true story. Yeah, a humor and excitement and pathos and meaning and all of it. When my wife and I both heard the story, he was competing against me in a Grand Slam championship. He told that story and my wife turned to me and she said, well, you're done. <laughs> and I and I thought, she's right. That yeah. might be the best story I've ever heard told on a stage in my life. 
so there was that, you know, um, I don't know, I don't know if there's a recording that can be accessed from it, but I just remember hearing that story and thinking that's probably the best story I've ever heard told on stage. So, yeah. Is that um, uh, available in, um, in your podcast? No, it's, it was told at the moth and I don't have those, you know, I can't use a moth recording on my podcast. Yeah. I don't know. I've never found it. I've, I've referenced it before and I've looked for it and the moth has never uh, aired it yet. So I haven't. I have no recording of it. I only have a beautiful memory of it. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> as someone who is is intimately involved with storytelling, narrative, this sort of um, you know, this sort of this idea of marketing a little bit, are there big brands and media personalities who you recognize as being masters of storytelling? Mike Brabiglia, yeah, Mike Brabiglia, the comedian who's really a storyteller. I study tons of what he does. He is really a funny storyteller, not a comedian. What's I his would name? Argue. Mike Brabiglia. Okay. Um, he's an American. He actually started at the Moth. He actually started telling stories. He tells a very famous story about he has a sleep disorder that forces him to, requires him, not, it makes him get out of bed. He enacts the things that he's dreaming. Yeah. And so he threw himself out of the second floor when second floor window of a hotel once wow. uh, thinking that he was being chased by a jackal. Yeah. And uh, now he has to sleep in a special sleeping bag where his wife zips him up to his neck so that he can't get out. <laughs> he has to take drugs to paralyze himself at night. So he told that story, you know, many, many years ago and sort of got a lot of attention for it and has since done a whole bunch of one man shows mm -hmm. or one person shows for Netflix and things like that. Oh, cool. Looking and he's a genius. Yeah, he's fantastic. I study, I've watched some of his specials multiple, multiple times because his use of his ability to transition from a story to some amusing anecdote and then back into the story seamlessly is just brilliant. Yeah. So I, I think he's terrific. Mm. Any others or that one is that stands alone is a great one? Um, well, I mean, Steve Zimmer, who you can see some of his stories on the internet the moth storyteller. I think he's the best storyteller I've, I've ever competed against in my life. I also think that uh, the comedian, but I would say storyteller Tig Notaro is pretty extraordinary. There is moments in her shows when she's just doing stand up, but a lot of times she is storytelling mm -hmm. as well. I, I think there's a bunch of comedians in the world today that are really storytellers who tell funny mm -hmm. stories and then they will pepper their shows with actual jokes, but the stories themselves that exist within their shows are so great because what a comedian does is they find a story, they work on it for nine months in front of 400 audiences until they find it perfect, until they craft it in a perfect way. Even I don't do yep. that. You know, I work out a story, I figure, figure what's going to go well, and then I go perform it. And then I might perform it a few more times, but then I'm on to my next yeah. story, whereas a comedian will spend a year honing their craft perfectly. Yeah. So I like paying attention to those folks when they're good stories. The, the, the comedian comparison uh, is one that, you know, I immediately would, would make as well. Someone who is just literally crafting things for a comedic effect on the other end. But what about like the emotional yeah. um, appeal? Like, are there, is there any big brands who you think master storytelling? Nike's famous for it, though. I don't know if it's, if it's fair that they are famous for it. Apple as well. Do, do you think about it from that perspective a bit? Well, I guess the one big brand I would say that sort of gets it right every time is Pixar. Mm. You know, the films that they make, again, I know that a Pixar film takes somewhere between five to 10 mm. years to make, and it's constantly focus grouped. 
So, you know, those are fictional stories. Actually? Yeah. Okay. I yeah. Didn't, I didn't know that. It takes an endlessly long period of time for them to, to make a film. Their movie Frozen, for example, I think it took six years. And it's mm -hmm. a lot of, we make a story, we see what people think, and then we change it based upon what they think. So just like the mm -hmm. comedian who goes out on the road for a year and hones that story till it's perfect, Pixar does the same thing in a fictional way. They really nail it just about every single time. You know, mm -hmm. my great disappointment is I just think there's a lot of bad storytelling in the world, including movies. I, I think a lot of times people leave a movie and think the movie was excellent. And I look at it, you know, my wife is famous for saying, like, we left the movie Wonder Woman. And as we were walking across the parking lot, she said to me, can you let me think that was good for about 10 minutes before you tell me why it was terrible? And I said, I never have to tell you why it was terrible. You know, you can just go on throughout life thinking it was good. I said, it's a terrible movie that sends an awful message. But if you want to continue to think that it's great, I have no problem with that. So, you know, eventually I explained to her why. And she said, you've now ruined the movie, but you are correct. Mm -hmm. You know, she acknowledged that my assessment of the movie was correct. But I think that's what happens. I think people like, I don't want people to go to a movie, read a book, or even listen to one of my stories and sort of analyze it to the degree that I do. I understand that's not a realistic expectation, but I do want people to question whether what they just saw was good, you know, whether what they saw was the the best version of it, whether it said the thing that it was trying to say. And I think that doesn't yeah. happen. I mean, very well, that often. would be nice, wouldn't it? But yeah, um, it's unfortunately, I think there's too much, too much expectations um, at the moment, but though yeah. it's good to set high expectations, isn't it? Um, but I had on a guest called Angus Fletcher, maybe you're familiar with him, maybe not. Uh, no. he wrote a book called story worthy. Um, and it's kind of like inventions of literature, mm -hmm. uh, a really fascinating guy thinks a lot about narrative and stories. Um, and he kind of like breaks down the, the idea of the hero's journey as this, you know, almost like subconscious archetypal storyline that we just resonate with completely yeah and what he says and what i agree with is it's kind of just survivorship bias there was a really good story that they copied again and again and again with very small iterations pixar <laughs> famously frozen famously um yet there are a lot of movies like say wonder woman or um i find it increasingly difficult to find a really good movie i, I don't know maybe it, it, I mean, this is this is now stepping away from the content of story where then it's more just a generalized chat, but I'm sure it's something you think about a lot as well. Like, do you have any big ideas for why uh, movies are so much less satisfying? Sort of, it's so much harder to find a movie that you step away from thinking, man, that really, that, that sort of hit me here a little bit. You don't really get that anymore. Yeah, well, they don't make, you know, unfortunately, a lot of the movies that do that, I think, for us, because you know, we don't go to the movies to see small stories and, you know, these meaningful moments that can touch us. We go to the movies now because they'd better be, you know, big action moments or, you know, hilarious set pieces that are going to mm -hmm. be memorable forever. And I understand that, you know, I watched all of the Marvel movies during the pandemic with my family. I had never mm -hmm. seen any of them before. And so we okay. started at the first one and worked our way all the way through. My wife says it was one of the best things we ever did during the pandemic. We sat next to my son and we just watched the Marvel Universe, which was great. I mean, that you know, is I, cool. That is cool. Yeah. It, yeah, it was it was a blast. And some of those movies are not bad at all. Like, I mm -hmm. enjoyed it. I enjoyed all of them. Some of them are actually fairly interesting to me. Mm -hmm. 
But, you know, if every movie has to be something like that, it's going to be really challenging. And so mm-hmm. then when I tell people, like, I remember I saw a movie years ago, ago called Lars and the Real Girl. And uh, it's fantastic. And there's just no way that movie can, like, be successful and compete against the world today. It's just about a guy who buys a... I, I know it sounds ridiculous, but it's a really great movie. It's about a guy who buys a sex doll. And the neighbors sort of are aware that this man who lives alone has just bought a sex doll. And... And he loves it. Like, he just loves this this girl, this sex doll. It's a great movie. But there's just no room for it in the world today, you know. And especially in terms of our headspace, because there's so much content being produced right now. Even when something comes out, it's often so hard to talk to people about it and to really think about it because no one's watched the same thing. You know, we've all watched so many different things now because there's not like four movies at the movie theater. There isn't you know, four television shows every night. Like it's just so much content, which is beautiful and fantastic. Mm -hmm. But if I want to talk about how great the show Fleabag is, I have to find someone who has seen that British comedy that, that appeared on Netflix. And it's just hard to even find someone who's watched it. So I think that becomes all very challenging. And so what happens is movies have to be huge in order to gain cultural awareness. Yeah. And then we lose some of the great stories that we could have. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, it like liquidates to the middle for relatability rather than that yeah. small. Yeah. Um, look, Matthew, you uh, have been so generous with your time. And so I don't want to uh, take advantage of your generosity because I could just hear, sit here and chit chat with you. But I'm also mindful of the, <laughs> uh, of the generous listener who's still with us two hours in. So I was hoping to finish out with um, two baseline questions that I ask every single guest. And then if you would indulge me. I could tell you a story that I wrote immediately after I finished your book, trying to apply some things and you could tell me where it needs to be improved. Yeah. Okay. Sure. Cool. First off question. Um, this is actually kind of a geopolitics podcast, uh, just FYI. Um, okay. But what is, is, is there a country that you're very bullish on? Uh, which is just to say a country you think is going is heading in the right direction, has an amazing future ahead of it. Wow. You know, as an American, (laughs) I often look to the North and think that uh, Canada is sort of the, it just feels like the place that not everything is a thing. You know, it, it just feels like a place filled with, decent human beings Mm -hmm. and you know maybe that's my perception because i'm in america which is a country i love and i'm very bullish on my own Mm -hmm. country to a certain degree you know we we went through four years where i was not so bullish and now i'm slightly more bullish but i often think that uh, canada represents sort of the better side of humanity and so i often think that it's not going to take over the world canada which is kind of a lovely thing (laughs) that there's a that there's a country that exists, that is solid and good and is not threatening anyone and seems to be filled with a lot of good, decent people. So I think that's probably the country I often think about in terms of being bullish. Nice. Yeah, Canada gets a good, um, they, they get represented quite well here. A couple things going for them, obviously, have a, enormous natural wealth and they actually are only going to continue to get more natural wealth as more of the northern coastline becomes not habitable, but at least mineable. And then obviously if it yeah. um, melts enough, they're also going to have some of the best shipping 
uh, routes in the world with one of the biggest uh, uh, borders. So there's a lot of good things going for Canada, obviously an amazing uh, culture and a uh, very sort of not like old age liberal, but new age liberal ideas of um, quality and fairness and humbleness. There's like a real sort of humility to the Canadian culture, I think as well, which is great. And they have some amazing cities and they've got good tech and they've got smart people, good universities. So I agree wholeheartedly. Um, more interesting question. Who, if you could witness a conversation between any two people of history, dead or alive, who would they be and why? Does it have to be a conversation that has happened or do I put two people two together? Two people together. They could be living separate ages. Wow. They could be living in separate ages. Well, I always want to talk to Winston Churchill. So he's going to definitely be on one side of mm -hmm. the table. Whoever I want to put him with, it's going to be Churchill for sure. I just think, I think that guy is solid and interesting you know i guess i mean the other guy i'm really sort of fascinated with i'd love to hear churchill and lincoln have a conversation you know i think i don't know part of me just wants to bring lincoln back to let him know it all worked out it makes me crazy that someone does something you know you know he brings our country through the civil war and sort of doesn't get to see whether it ends up okay right. although maybe today it's looking less okay than it used to but uh you know, I think it would be pretty fascinating because I think Churchill and Lincoln both brought their countries through really challenging and extraordinary times. And I would love to hear sort of like their philosophy sure. and their more than the philosophy, actually, as the storyteller, I just want to know mm -hmm. how it felt, you know, like I, I want to know how it felt. Churchill, I think, is fascinating just because he sort of is beloved and then mm -hmm. not beloved, you know, he's and that makes me nuts. I'm, <laughs> just think like come on brits like he was he saved you and then you just sort of <laughs> tossed him aside a little bit so i would just like to know on a personal level how hard it was and how they got mm -hmm. through their days you know uh as human beings i'd love to hear the two of them mm. talk no about that would that. be fascinating i mean any 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 table where churchill is on the other side of would be entertaining at the very least at the very least yeah yeah like it would be yeah, That's a great cool question. I'm going to be thinking about it all day. I'm going to be thinking literally all day. I'm going to be going, was there a better choice? Nice. Well, you know, I mean, <laughs> as you said off air, you're currently writing um, a new book. So, you know, if you would uh, be interested, I'd love for you to come back on and talk about it then as well. And maybe you can I'd love to. stew on it for a while and come up with the best answer ever <laughs> at the end. Um, yeah. Okay. Right. So I guess this is putting myself out there a little bit, but it's okay. Um, it's about my uh, experience at my uncle's funeral. And uh, this is the story. And I'm reading it off because I don't have it memorized. Okay. Yep. I don't care how messed up my uncle was. I'm at his funeral and it's as if no one cares. I'm walking down the center aisle of your typically stale and lifeless modern church. My grandfather and I are in lockstep making our way to the pew. It is his son who lays in the casket. The mood was awkward, mild, and the room was full of natural light. It was a Queensland summer, extremely hot and very sticky. As we made our way to our assigned seats, my grandfather purposely darted and pulled me over to the left side of the church, away from the rest of his family, away from his wife and his only living child. 
he decisively wanted to sit away from anyone who might see him weak. So he, so he directed us far away as he could. Our whole family was seated on the right side of the church while together him and I sat alone on the left. I expected someone to say something, someone to help me redirect my grandfather towards the comfort of his family. But just like the mood of the whole occasion, people just ignored it. It was as if they didn't care. What I quickly realized, though, was that it was not for a lack of care the mood was so mild, but it was for exactly the opposite. All of the 18 attendees at this funeral were completely swelled up with agony, but to be misguided by their pride to not allow themselves to weep. And so because everyone was ready to burst out in tears, no one dared be touched. My grandfather wasn't the type to hold hands, so when he took my hand and squeezed it firmly, it felt entirely unnatural. It's quite hot, so our hands quickly sweated, but I didn't mind the discomfort. I was 21 years old, and my granddad was showing me for the first time in his life sensitivity. He was pleading with me that I help him keep it together, but I couldn't for the life of me understand why he felt like he needed to keep it together. You're at your son's funeral. It's okay to cry. My grandfather was born in the 1930s rural Australia. They were bred tough. So tough it seemed that I was coming to realize as we continually deepened into the procession, it became clearer and clearer to me that my grandfather intended to bury the sum of all emotions he could possibly endure at his own son's funeral. He did not permit himself to cry. In his welling eyes, I could see misplaced pride wrestling with grief. He insisted that we talk throughout the service, asking me how the drive there was, whether we found a park, anything that would distract him from addressing the moment. I'd never before seen him so unsettled. No, mate, I said firmly. Pay attention, dad's speaking, as my father gave his brother's eulogy. We sung a hymn. He loved to sing so much, yet he held back tears through a shaky voice and gritted teeth. The experience shone an insight into Australia and the older generations. As I surveyed the room, I was disturbed to realize there was barely a tear shed for the entire service from anyone. And then as I came to realize this, not even from me. Maybe this is a consequence of the subject of the funeral, but I doubt it. I think what I was witnessing was the wicker end of a tougher generation. Even my father, up there in front of 18 people, speaking of the life of his dead brother, even he wouldn't dare himself expose a crack in the armor. There was a sad, overwhelming sense in the air of simply, let's just get through it. Let's get through the formalities so we can put this behind us. I hated this mood. Why are you all too tough to cry? It's your family, for God's sake. But then I realized again, I had barely come close to a tear myself. What is happening? People wouldn't allow themselves to settle in the moment out of fear of embarrassment onto others, their shedded weight of grief. The service was coming to an end and I couldn't help but feel as if the funeral felt incomplete. I sensed that the moment had not been properly unwrapped. We hadn't yet properly acknowledged why we were all there. I expected everyone to avoid their tears. I expected no one to be able to talk about this on the ride home. I expected my parents to insist that we not bring up the funeral in the future. I was ashamed of myself and everyone in attendance for not having the courage to show that they cared. But what made the service beautiful, what made the service memorable, what justified the impact that my uncle had onto others was what happened to the room as we began filing out of the church. The wrapping seemingly shed. As the left and right columns filed into the center aisle to make their way out of the car, to the car, my grandfather met my grandmother in the middle, having just separately celebrated the life of their youngest son, 
she, at the sight of my grandfather, frail and vulnerable, finally let her guard down. She collapsed into her husband's arms and allowed herself to cry. She said through her tears, it was a lovely service, wasn't it? In response to which, my grandfather, the man who squeezed my hand for misdirection and wanted above all to be distracted from his own son's funeral, who under no circumstance would let anyone see him cry, finally buckled at the knees and let loose his carried grief. Tears streamed down his face as he embraced my grandmother. They held each other for the first time in years, sharing the grief for their lost son. The moment then cascaded permission for my father to cry, the sight of which then drew tears from others and then, to my surprise, even me. But for some reason, true to my lineage, I didn't want anybody to see me cry. So rather than embracing my family, I swiftly exited the church, hid around the corner and sobbed cathartically. Nothing softens the eyes quite like seeing your parents cry, but a beautiful justice was done for my uncle. Because in one moment, the moment when my grandparents embraced, the whole audience was given permission to let their emotions spill over. The mood of the church lifted and the people were relieved of their grief, having done service to a man who left so powerful impression on the few that he touched. Well done. Um, How'd that feel? I, 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 uh, I mean, there was definitely an emotional part to towards the end of reading it. I hadn't actually I hadn't read that for. I, I wrote this maybe six months ago or something after I finished your book. Um, but yeah, so I uh, to write that I I made sure that I set the scene. I created stakes. I eliminated the fat, and I delivered the five second moment. In creating the stakes, I used um the uh elephant the backpack breadcrumbs the hourglass and the crystal ball <laughs> yeah you used them all huh i don't i often you know i often <laughs> i always have to remind people that in my book i teach those stakes tricks but i don't use them all in every story mm -hmm. i i chose that story for the book because i need them all because that story in the book is not appealing mm -hmm. until the very end really you have to trick people into thinking it's good um so good job yeah yeah, yeah. i, I, I asked for critique uh, you know i'll offer you a few suggestions but um uh you know the number one thing i would think about is the idea that when we're telling a story what we want to do is reproduce the same or something similar to the reaction that we had in our audience so there are moments in your story when you sort of offer mm -hmm. what I think of as a thesis statement before the moment takes place. And that's often, it's often problematic because okay. it doesn't allow the audience to experience things in the moment you experience them. So for example, um, like for example, at the very end when you said, but what made the mm -hmm. funeral beautiful was, and then you described what happened after. In your experience, you were not leaving the church going, but you know what's going to make the, the funeral mm -hmm. beautiful is what I'm about to see, but that's essentially what you told the audience. It's much more interesting for the audience to leave the church and see the things happen as a surprise rather than getting that sentence that prepares them for the surprise. Does that make sense? For sure. So instead of saying, but what made the moment beautiful, would it just be a like a, not a cliche, but it would be like, and as we were leaving, this happened. Yeah. Almost. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah. You want to have it reported. You want to report it to the audience in the same way that it happened to you. So other things like um, when you said your grandfather didn't want to be seen while weeping, 
Mm. Uh, it seemed like you he had either said that to you or you surmised it. Mm. I and, surmised um, it. So I want you to, rather than saying, you said it as if like it was a truth in your grandfather rather than I'm sitting there and suddenly I understand why we're on this side of the church. Mm -hmm. He doesn't want to see people he doesn't want people to see him weeping. Sure. So rather than just presenting it as institutional knowledge, I want to see it happen. When you hold your hand, right? You say he's not the type to hold hands, mm -hmm. right? Um, there's a there's a there's another idea also with the 1930s rural Australia. He's um the idea that those guys are tough. Mm -hmm. What you want to do is when he we want to see him hold your hand, and then you. And we want to feel the surprise that he's holding your hand. Mm -hmm. So what you can do is if you set earlier in the story, the idea that this is a tough guy from the 1930s Australia, he's the kind of guy who doesn't cry, he doesn't hold hands, he doesn't do this, he does that. Mm -hmm. And you separate that explanation from the moment of him holding your hand. So rather than telling us he's holding your hand sort of after the fact, what we would want to see is we'd want to know he's a tough guy who doesn't hold people's hands. And then sitting in the church, suddenly you feel his hand close over yours. Mm -hmm. And then we can feel that like, oh, you know, we we know him. And then we know why holding the hand is such a big, big deal, deal rather than you telling us holding hands yeah. is a big deal. Does that make yeah, sense? Yeah, for sure. That's it's similar it's to the, the first critique, right? Rather than like it is, yeah. report it as you feel it happening rather than give context for people. Yeah. Right. We almost want a second by second account of the story in many ways, you know, not literally because it would take forever, <laughs> but all of those significant moments, we want to experience them as you experience them. And you want to preload us with the information that we, we require to make that moment have meaning, but the information and the moment have to be separate so that we can feel like we knew the guy for a little while. We knew the grandfather and then he held mm -hmm. the hand and now we have a reaction as a result. So, it's it's just the idea that we want our audience to experience these things in the way we experience them. The tricky thing is the way you wrote the story in many ways is you were writing it from the you of the you of now or the you of the moment you were writing it. What you really want to be doing is writing the story from the perspective of the you in mm. the church. So you have to eliminate everything you know after yeah. the fact. You know, eliminate all of the understanding you have. And only be in that moment. Like tell the story live. Yes, exactly. So eliminate all of the, the things that you learned later, all the things you surmised. Yeah, if you figured out something, you have to figure it out in front of us rather than telling us you figured mm. it out. Um, that That's mostly what I would say. The other little suggestion I'd give you is I think it might be an interesting beginning of the story if you used a little cognitive dissonance. If we started with I'm walking down an aisle, I'm walking down an aisle in a church, right? Now we're like, oh, to create some right. wonder initially. Are, are we in a wedding? You know, is this a wedding? You know, I'm you know, I'm holding someone by the arm, you know. Now we're thinking, is it is it a woman? Mm -hmm. Is he getting married? It's my grandfather, right? And then we go, why is he walking down the aisle in church with his yeah. grandfather, right? Up ahead is a coffin. And now it's weird because we expect your grandfather to right. be in the coffin, right? Yeah, not, not on your arm. So all like you can lead us through the story a little bit slower in the beginning and really create an enormous amount of wonder even when you go off like his his wife is sitting on one side but we turn right mm -hmm. and head to the other side don't tell us mm -hmm. why yet right like just let us keep wondering like what is going it's one of these stories that i get the sense right away that you could hold us in a state of wonder for a very long time until you finally settle in 
and you start to put together the pieces that day, like, oh, this is why he's over nice. here. This is why he's doing that. So cognitive dissonance doesn't always work in the beginning of a story. But in this story, I just think because of all the circumstances, it's an unusual situation. the way it plays yeah. out. You can, yeah, yeah, you can probably, you can't carry it too far because then people get frustrated with you if they can't, you know, if they're if they're wondering too much too long, mm -hmm. then they get frustrated. But I think you can get them all the way over to the other side of the church, sit down with grandpa and then explain what you yeah. figured out. I mean, I, on. Then I'm definitely I always, well, was conscious of, you know, cutting the fat. And even as I read that, I felt like this maybe was a bit too long. Um, but, you know, but I also want to mm -hmm. say, <laughs> like, I didn't say anything there about my uncle himself, you know, and there's like a lot of context yeah. there for, you know, why right. is this young man dead? Um, but then that decided that was cut away with a fat, but I, I don't know. Do you think it's worth a little bit of talking about him there or it's not, it's kind of inconsequential because the story is about my granddad. I think that the, I think it's a story about your granddad. And I actually think that by not explaining why your uncle is dead, that actually holds okay. the audience much longer. And it's one of those yep. things I think I would never say I, it, you know, it's, I, I write, I think I write in the book that stories are like, I like to think of them as a coat. You put a coat on somebody and the harder it is to take that coat off, the longer the story mm -hmm. lasts in someone's heart. If I don't know wh why your uncle died, I just think that story has more lasting appeal in my mind. You know, it's, and it's not relevant to the story. Why your uncle died is not relevant. This is a story about uh, a, a man who is unable to cry at his son's funeral and finally mm -hmm. finds the ability to do it. And, makes yep, you realize yep. something about yourself in the process. So you're, you know, the, the cause of your uncle's death mm. is not relevant really to the Well, story. thanks for that, mate. Yeah. There's some uh, free masterclass yeah. at the end there. Cheers. <laughs> um, Anytime. Well, look, I'm happy to do it. Matthew Dix, um, really an hour and a half has flown by really, really generous with your time. And also thank you for the book story worthy as well. Nothing beats the original text. So, um, we heard uh, Matthew's story about the car accident there. The book is littered with great stories similar to that. So there's the book, obviously you want to purchase it. I'm going to put the Google drive for the homework into the podcast description. And also you have a podcast and what other stuff do you want to let people know about? Um, you know, well, I publish novels. So if you're interested in reading one of my novels, I think I have six novels, a book of nonfiction. Yeah, we have a podcast called Speak Up Storytelling. So if you want to hear stories that are produced here in New England, where we produce our shows, we take a story from one of our shows, and then we play it. So you get to hear a good story. And then we deconstruct it. We talk about what's going well in that story, what can be improved, yep. sort of what I just did with you to a greater extent. And uh, it's like a class on storytelling every week. And you get to hear my wife, who's wonderful and uh she's the reason amazing well thank you again sir and uh, have a lovely day <laughs> all right thanks so much